tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. And then we realized that, no, they were rather going on a rescue operation. We begged them that, okay, we want to be part of the rescue operation. And then they allowed us, and then we got on the boats, you know, with them. I think I would have to continue um, the story next week. We'll continue that story um, next maybe, week. Maybe, I just have some seconds to leave the But, you know, I would ask myself, why was the guy yeah. pulling you guys were, uh, in the water? Why were they using uh, yeah. an, uh, an outboard motor? Maybe you have the backstory. Yeah, next week, Sunday, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that, Breeze. Next week, Sunday, <laughs> I promise. I promise. Okay. Okay. We but, have to, but, run, but again, we have to run out of the studio. The Brace. microphone went down. How, how were you still able to then continue the reporting? <laughs> Brace, so I had to connect. Um, they had to call me on phone. They had to call me on phone here. So I had to hold the microphone and then my phone together and report. But whatever you were hearing was actually coming from my phone and not the microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Brace. Um, uh, let's listen to Agba for the week, and then we run out of the studio. This one is from the archives. Touch template replaces the sent on 15th April 2020 that's how we had Sunday edition for today. My name is Maxwell Ababa. Next week, Sunday, we'll bring you more. Up next, Springboard. Bye-bye. Welcome to Springboard, your virtual university. My name is Albert Okran. Welcoming you on behalf of Team Springboard, ably led by Comfort. This is your most inspirational show and the point where the greatest minds in the world converge. Springboard is brought to you by the Springboard Roadshow Foundation and proudly sponsored by MTN Pulse Just Be, the enterprise group Enterprise Your Advantage, UMB Bank celebrating 50 years in banking and central university, Ghana's premier private Christian university, our media partners, the multimedia group, and the graphic business. So today we continue in the engine room, most people's favorite place where they get to hear behind-the-scenes stories from achievers and frontliners in various fields of endeavor from arts to academia to business to governance to everything in between. And today we have a very special one for you because we say we are going to the unseen part of the engine room. Today's show is very special for three reasons. First, because mental fitness is very big for, for us here at the virtual university. Secondly, because today we enter the inner chamber, that part of our lives that we really want to talk about, but which are so critical for our progress. And the third reason 
is the biggest because we get to hear the amazing story of one of our favorite people right here at the virtual university sharing the two sides of the story first as a carer or service provider and the second side also as a patient in in, in her own unique way in the studio today is a physician clinical psychologist and bioethicist our own doctor ama Chiroa Edwin. I'm good to see you. Good to see you too, Rev. Charlie, we know about physician, we know about <laughs> clinical psychologists, but what on earth is a bioethicist? So, uh, most people know about ethics for most professions, you know, the ethics of journalism, the ethics of ministry, ethics of this. So, bioethics is broader. It looks at the ethical issues involved not only in the biomedical areas, but research, the new things that are coming, innovation, we know about genetic engineering, we know about gene splicing, I mean, all of those things that can raise a lot of philosophical issues the issue of yes we can but must we so right. what ethics tries to do is to situate it and let us know what we ought to do not mm -hmm. what we can do just because the technology is available are you like a regulator no the regulators i mean part of it is and ethics doesn't have enforcing power except mm. the part that is coded. If you bring your protocol and it's being reviewed by an ethics board, there are things that the law allows you to do or does not allow you to do. But there are other things that the law doesn't speak about. Let's say we have a criminal condemned to death and you have about 10 doctors, top doctors in their field. They all need different organs. And this criminal is fit. His organs are perfect. He's going to be killed per the cause decision. Is it okay to say that, well, because his organs are okay, then let's take his organs and give it to these 10 top doctors who are contributing so much? Maybe for criminal people who say, well, he's going to die anyway. So why don't you let him do some good? But he's supposed to die by either firing squad or hanging or electric chair, but not for his organ. He has to give consent. To, to you can't say, important. yes, you can't say that just because he's been condemned to die, the state can say, let's take his organs. Wow. And, you know, so those are... <laughs> So, so cool. So do you get to practice all three legs of your career? Yes, I do. And I think the one area, so my clinical practice is mostly in palliative care, even though I do clinical ethics. And For the benefit of our, our, our viewers and okay. listeners, what is palliative so, care? So palli um, palliation is more to the original word means to cover to put a cloak, to cloak someone. So let's say someone is cold and you are cloaking the person. So it's more like comfort or supportive case. So for people with life-limiting diseases, there's sometimes a lot that we can do to cure them, but there's a lot we can do to make them live the best quality of their lives. So in palliative care... Who are about to die. No, you see, okay, so... I mean, no, so that is hospice. Hospice, um, end-of-life care is part of palliative care, but it's the continuum. That's okay. why I say supportive. I prefer 
supportive and palliative care because a lot of people equate palliative care to end of life care right. even physicians i've had physicians you ask oh why didn't you refer the patient to palliative care oh but she's not dying and now i'm like okay we we still need to talk a lot about it because palliative care doesn't mean end of life end of life is part of it but that is towards the end even if you are diagnosed with life-limiting diseases diabetes is a life-limiting disease right. Cancers that can be cured, life-limited disease, hypertension, and we can because we support you with pain, with symptom management, with psychosocial support, with spiritual care, all of that. So palliative care is to help you live the best life you can live amidst the condition in which you are in. And as a physician, a clinical psychologist, and a bioethicist, I mean, I wear all those three hats in that area because end-of-life issues, ethical issues. Most of the consoles that you, you get, you get someone who is dying, says, I want everything. And sometimes at the end of the day, you do everything, the person still dies, and then the patient's family can pay the bill. But maybe if the person had not insisted on wanting everything or the family hadn't insisted, they could have had a better quality of life instead of the person being intubated and not recovering. Maybe he would have had his maybe high flow oxygen all right, but would be able to interact with the people. The person can do that. One thing I can say is that at least you've been educated a bit more about what you do. And this is what the <laughs> virtual university is all about. So let's let's flip this conversation about mental fitness. And I call it mental fitness because it's more than just mental health. It's a broad... I want to focus on the broad fitness of the men, person mentally. So let's start from the end and work our way backwards. Let's start with yourself. You. you are an accomplished medical professional. Everybody knows you to be that person who speaks in big conferences around <laughs> the world and a consultant for that matter. But share your own experience of your own stress and your own depression as a source of encouragement to somebody listening who says, ah, I want to be like Dr. Big professional. Okay. So um, my, my foray into mental health or the field of mental health was actually somewhere in November 1985. I was in lower six in Achimota school and I had all these issues. And then a mate and friend of mine, Kofi Lane, said, you know, there's this nice lady I know. I'll take you to go and talk, um, have a chat with her. So we went to Legon, and then it was um, my mentor, Dr. Arbasis. So if I did it, of blessed memory. So that was the first time I met her. And after about an hour, I felt so better. And I walked away saying, this is what I want to do. Wow. But I also loved medicine. So I went to medical school after medical school, was working in the psychiatric hospital because for me it's mental health. And then along the line, I, I felt that I, was, I wanted to do clinical psychology and not psychiatry. That was my bent. So I went there and been working and having a great time doing that, even though sometimes some of the people you deal with can be challenged. But I remember sometime in May 2009, I realized that I had become 
withdrawn and weeping, not eating, not doing. At that time, my husband was going to do a fellowship in pediatric and congenital heart surgery in South Africa for two years. And we had prayed that we're not moving as a family. He would go, but we would visit often. So I was okay. But after about three weeks, I knew what it was. So I went to see a senior colleague and friend of mine, Prof. Samyohini, and I mean, you know, when you are a professional, you know the deal. Normally, when you go, there are tests that you get. And I remember one test that he gave me, and I was like, Sammy, you know I give these tests to people. I know how it's scored. So definitely, I'm going to write it in a way that it will reflect positively. Because just the idea that it's depression didn't sit well with me. And the surprising thing was he said, even knowing that, and knowing that you are filtering your answers, your score still indicates severe depression. Wow. And so, well, I started medication, then I got better. But then I, I, I was I was having therapy with Dr. Sifadidi too at the same time, but over time, I realized that it was hard. It was hard because anytime I saw a patient with depression, I would break down. Anytime I saw it, especially people like me, it's like, you know, for years we we're married, we didn't have a child, I didn't get pregnant. I wasn't depressed that time. I was sad at times, but if I had been depressed, it would have made sense to me because there was something. So it's like infertility, depression as a result of infertility. It's understandable. It's happening. So, but everything seemed great. And so is it like because my husband is going now, it doesn't mean I'm so dependent. It became an issue of who am I as a person? Am I not whole without my husband and all of that? These were things I had to work in therapy because that was the only link I could find, you know. Was it more difficult for you because you knew so much about the condition? I think it was more difficult because I've always known stigma is real and I've fought against stigma. But for me, it became more difficult when one time I was in the pharmacy in Kolebu buying fluxetine. And a friend who is a pharmacist came and is like, oh, I'm aware then I'm so metal fluxetting. And like, for who? Without thinking, I said for myself, ah, who could call South Africa, Kakriya, who get depressed, they are I mean, I was like, first of all, you are a pharmacist and a clinical pharmacist at that. Secondly, this was a public space. Kolibu 24-hour pharmacy. Even if you thought I was not depressed, being depressed makes you vulnerable, but to just let it out and say, so that's when I realized that, okay, this stigma is real. And then you hear more stories. Another person tells me, you know, a senior colleague too says that, oh, you know, you can't be a Christian and be depressed. If you're a Christian and you are depressed, it's either the sin in your life or you're not trusting God. And on that day, 
I wept like I have never wept before. But thankfully, I was able to go and see Dr. Sefadede and Prof. Ohine and we talked through these issues because I didn't expect this from medics. You see, if people who don't know about this talk about it, fine. But here it was, as Frank used to say, I was self-stigmatizing. So that itself was difficult because I, I, it was, now I'm talking about it, but it, I felt I'm not strong enough because in my mind it was linked to my husband going to South Africa. Let me, let me, let me pause here. And, and by the way, when you, when you said Frank, for the benefit of our viewers, that's your husband, Prof. Frank Ed, Ed, Edwin, and we celebrate you, Prof, for, for who you are and what, what you represent. But Amma, is it wrong to be in love? No, it's not about being in love. Even if you, even if you were, no, even it's... If you were, you were going to miss your husband. Yes, but to the point of, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's like to be diagnosed with severe clinical depression as a result of that really didn't. But, you know, so later on, part of what came up in therapy was um, childhood abuse that I had blettered out when the person who abused me died and my mom told me. So I was like, okay, in my mind, maybe it is the, if adverse childhood events can lead to serious mental challenges and mental problems. So again, I'm talking about who I think I am, a woman who knows God, loves God, knows who she is, loves her husband. I mean, but I didn't want to be the woman who becomes depressed because her husband is away for two years. And almost the longest interval we had apart was six weeks. I was, I was visiting often. I mean, let, let me ask you, how, how did Frank feel about that part of the story? Whether the fact that it was linked to his trouble, he thought that it's just, I mean, he's more practical. He, he, I mean, he said, yeah, it's like it's just coincidental. I think I was doing psychoanalysis on myself, that's why I was, I think, I was desperate in course to find a course. Though I teach and I tell my, my patients that most of the time we can't find the cause of depression, but when there's a cause especially something that is outside you, you feel kind of better in a way. It's like if you're diagnosed with cancer and you become depressed as a result. It's understandable. But everything seems to be going on with your life and you are diagnosed with depression, then people wonder. And that's why someone could tell me that as a Christian, if you are depressed, it's either you don't have faith or the sin in your life because the joy of the Lord is our strength. I mean, <laughs> so it's, I, I, I'll put it how Dr. Sifadidi put it. She said, Amma, you are letting the depression, the diagnosis of depression oppress you. Wow. So I get a sense that in who you talk to or who you see when you are going through this kind of situation, it's critical. It is critical. Because it I know is. I know Dr. Sifadili very well. I know she's a thorough professional and yeah. also because of her Christian and ministry background, exactly. she brings so much more to her exactly. practice than just exactly. the professional angle. Yeah. Do, would you say that that was a lifesaver for you, the person you chose to talk to? Yeah, well, for me, she has been my therapist and mentor from 1985, as I, I mentioned. This had seen me through from lower six. 
seeing me through so many challenges. So, I mean, it was natural that uh -huh, I, I, I talked to her. I mean... Let me ask you, you mentioned um, the, the lower 60... Um, mm -hmm. challenges that you had then you link it to is it may 2022 or 2020 sorry no the the may one was when so in lower sense i wasn't diagnosed with depression it, right. it was just i mean issues growing up i had right. moved from an all-girls school to uh, med school, school and i mean i had issues that my friend thought she could help me and she did really hell help, help yeah. me so in, in that instance, what it got you to do was to look at mental health or or being a clinical psychologist and say, I, I think for yes it made me see you know because all she did mostly was listen every now and then she would say something but she gave me the space she made me feel welcome important she was there for me it's like the good the bad and ugly i could tell her anything without being ashamed or embarrassed you know and over the years i mean it's like i don't know things that you, you think how do i when you have a therapist that you gel with for lack of a better expression but in a way maybe mine was not just therapy because as i said she was also my mentor and teacher but it was all in but she was my go-to person if I had challenges. And sometimes it wasn't even being going through challenges. But even my profession, I remember when I, I wanted to... So I talked about coming into psychology. When I was in final year, my longest year was on mental health in Ghana. And I interviewed some people. And one of the people I interviewed was Reverend Professor Apiapoku Nkumase. And that was the first time I heard of someone being an ethicist. So I also liked what he did. So after medical school, even after clinical psychology, I was doing a lot of um, teaching on medical ethics and issues. So I remember Prof. Kram, who is also a friend, Kojo, Kojo Kram Noguchi, told me that, Amma, you know, you, you are good at this thing, but you need to also be training. So have you thought of doing a program in it? So... As Antaraba was my mentor, we discussed it. And I I knew that doing it, yeah, I mean, I didn't want it like philosophies, philosophy. But I also wasn't prepared to move out like four years, do a program. So she said, why don't you search online? These days there are great programs online. So I searched and I found a program in Loyola University, Chicago, at the Street School of Medicine, where they were doing bioethics and health policy. At that time, they had only a master's in it, so I had to do another master's. And just when I finished the master's, they had introduced a doctorate program. So I was able to do it mainly remotely, but only going there for the summers. Which, which worked work for you. Which worked for me. So let me just... Let me just pause from our conversation and break down your academic qualifications. So you, 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 are, you are a I thought we were talking about mental no, health. I'll come back to you. <laughs> it's allowed. So you are a medical doctor, mm -hmm. a physician. That's mm -hmm. your first qualification. Yes. Then you also are a clinical psychologist. Yes. So in, in that area, uh, what, what, what was the training? It's, a, it's an MPhil in clinical so psychology. I decided to hold an MPhil as a clinical psychologist. Yes. Then you hold a master's and then a doctorate. Yes, so a master's in bioethics and health policy and a doctor of bioethics. 
My goodness. <laughs> 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 no, but you see, the, the funny thing with the program, so it's a doctor of bioethics, it's not PhD, so it's not just mainly academic, it's supposed to be hands-on, and they actually wanted people who were in the field. So most of my mates were either doctors, practicing nurses, or lawyers. So it, it made it fun because you you are in the field and you are applying. I, I think that's a great program, the Loyola program. So Let me I, switch to the benefit of our, our viewers and listeners. The reason why we, we, we reached out to you to help us today is because we've had mental health conversations with with different practitioners, different patients. We've actually had a, a show one of the days when we had Angie um, mm-hmm. Ufurata in the show and then um, um, a lecturer who had lost his son and who had very, very difficult memories of his son passing and which he had used to set up a foundation for children with with um, heart conditions. And I remember the patient, the, 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 the lecturer breaking down the studio, crying, and Angie supporting him. We've had um, Angie here, uh, also with uh, my friend um, Kwabna Dapayafri, talking about his own. But in your case, we get to actually talk to somebody that is a practitioner in the same field yeah. providing service yeah. who says, listen, the service I provide is not strange to me because I've had my own experiences and yeah. my own my own pain, if I may use that word for yeah. that a better word. And that makes you okay. You're, you're very special. So I want to use your um, experience as a spring body, if I may, to reach out to people who are struggling and wondering, how do I reach out to get help? Oh, oh people think. Yeah. And so let's start from what I call the rat race. Do you think society-wise, I mean, as generally, we load ourselves with too much pressure to succeed. I think we do that now. We, we, I mean, if I, if I looked at my parents' generation, yes, both my parents work, both were in teaching. They come home occasionally over weekend. You see, my mom says she's making her nose or something. But for most of the time, they came home in good time. You know, and when they came home, the rest was family time. In this era, especially in the virtual era, it's not like that. I remember years ago, my older son was about five or six years. And I had, so that was when I was doing my program, my MA in bioethics, that I'd come home and I had a deadline to submit before the time. So I was in the bedroom. They kept knocking and I was like, oh, please, let me do. I have homework. At least he understood the concept of homework. You know, when I finished and I came back, he said, mommy, please finish your work before you come home. So that when you come home, we know you are home. I was like, Wow. It's like that, that was it. I mean, like, so that when you are home, you are home because here you are, you are home, but we don't have access to you. You'll be checking emails. Most of us have our emails on the phone. They have this. I mean, so the concept of well being, which is something that we should all do for ourselves, is far fetched. But especially for 
people who serve people. So for those in the services, especially healthcare, I think that it's an ethical imperative to take care of ourselves. Because if you break down, you're of no use to your patients. So there are things I personally decided not to do. I think it's from this year that when I come home, I'm not putting on my laptop. Mm. If I'm putting on my laptop, then maybe I'm listening to a message or something else. Even that, I'd rather do it on phone because once you are on the laptop, there'll be an email alert that I'll see. There'll be something that will pop up. And before you know, you are just walking around the clock, around the clock, and the things you want to do, spending time with your children, even when they are coming to ask you a question, it's like a distraction. I'm busy. But we have to find a balance between our work and our being. We are human beings, not human doings. Mm. It's like we become human doings. We're always doing, doing, doing. And we think the more you can pack in a day, the better it is. No. Rest is important. God gave us the Sabbath, remember? Probably, you, you, I mean... Doc, you, 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 you capture an issue that I'm sure, and I, and I, I can tell that tonight the house is full. You say the house is full. It's a virtual house, and I can tell that it's packed. It's packed today as we discuss this subject because you speak for not just medical practitioners. You talk about people who care for people. I can tell you that pastors are probably even more guilty. Yeah. Because your life is not your own, and everyone's taking a claim to your life genuinely believes that they... They need it or they deserve it or both. Yeah. And if you and the the needs are real. So if you don't take time at you sacrifice your wellness as you mentioned. Yeah. And it, it could have dire consequences. Let's help educate our, our, our publics with the sources of stress. So you say we are human beings, not human doers. Do and so yeah. we should rest. Yeah. Would 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 lack of rest be the first one? Yes. When so you are us, when, when you are exhausted, definitely, it's going to affect you. It will wear you out. I mean, physically, emotionally, psychologically, even spiritually, you will not be your optimum best if you are not. Definitely worry. I mean, there are so many. So normally, so let me put it this way: when we talk about stress, is it the event or is it the response? There is an event A, there is a response C, and in between you have the space B. Mm. The event you can't change. You've lost a loved one. Mm. It's painful. I mean, unless God raises that person up again, that is it. The response, yes, grieving is important and grieving is a road to recovery. But are you going to grieve and stop living because your loved one died? Is that what your loved one would want for you? Or knowing who your loved one is, they would want you to be able to go on living and even use this devastating event as a springboard for something else. You could have a ministry helping people who are grieving, people who are finding it difficult to move on. So something that could have been a devastating effect, as in you stop living and it's so stressful, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you've lost weight, you don't want to see anybody, you don't want to talk to anybody. 
you use that space to reconfigure what you can do. So events happen, lack of money, lack of job, relationship issues. Probably that should be number two. I mean, relationship issues, relationship issues. One of the things that grieves me is when people attempt to end their life because someone has left them. A human being has left you and you are so devastated, you think that you are better off dead. Of course, in the moment, the pain, an emotional pain can hurt you physically. I have experienced it. You know that you feel the pain within. But the pain, the source of the pain is emotional. It's not physical. It's psychological. It's not physical. But it is not worth your life. How many of us have not been in relationships that we thought we couldn't do without and then it ends and years later you see the person and I'm like, like seriously? <laughs> is this the thing? Who would even say is this the person? Is, right. is this the thing I was, I mean, you know, that kind of thing, but it's with time and healing. But, but let me ask you, and again, I come back to the point I made about being deeply loved. If you, if you love somebody that much, and in your case, if I may use your borrow from your case, the first, the first thought that came to mind was probably Frank is leaving, and you are so close to Frank that you. I, I mean, come back to travel for a year after we got married. I, I'm, I'm sure I had mental health issues. <laughs> the only amelioration mechanism was that I brought two of my closest friends to live with me in the house, so there was always somebody around you. But okay. I must tell you that yeah. it really, yeah. really disorganized me. Yeah. And so if, if I didn't have that support, who knows what, what one thing would have led yeah. to. So it is possible. I mean, oh, yes, it is. In fact, it was something that came up in my discussion with um, Dr. Sefadidi. That, yes, we, we talked about it. And so what if it... I think it was my interpretation. Because if I had seen it as, oh, my God, it's going to be challenging. I'm going to miss him. I'm going... And that, but I saw it as a weakness. Right. So, so it was the spin I put, the events. And... The likely outcome is this if you don't do this. So what you're saying is that in the midfield, in between the goalkeeper and the uh, uh, attack, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sit in the midfield and control your reaction. Exactly. And your interpretation of the event. Yes. So yes, I love Frank. I will miss him. But instead of reacting and saying, how, how could I say, what do I do to, yes. to keep myself whole oh. occupied and, and happy till Frank comes back. Or oh, even in this case, yes, I am depressed. Let's assume that the reason or not the reason, but one of the precipitating factors because we always talk about, I mean, maybe you have a predisposition and then the precipitation, which is the immediate cause and the things that maintain it. So let's say that the precipitating factor in this case was his being away. So what? You are close to him. Is going. You are going to. But it's not like being diagnosed with depression doesn't mean you are ill. It's, uh, it doesn't mean that you are weak. It's an illness. Something I always told my patient, it has nothing to do with being weak or strong. But at that time, I bought into the stigma. And that's why Frank said I was self stigmatizing, you know, because I felt that doesn't mean that I'm not whole without him. Um, so because marriage is two independent people who come and interdependence, you know, you but not self-stigmatizing thing you mentioned is widespread. Oh, it is common because we live in a society. We all know how we think of people who we think have issues. Oh, this person, we use expressions like, oh, the person is mental or he's gone or he's crazy. We, we, we have all these 
things there. Once you are in that society, and we live in a society where we have expressions like meaning that even if the person who is mad in court or the person with um, psychological or has a psychiatric disorder is cured, there is some that would be left that he used to frighten to. You know, so it's as if we don't even think. And, you know, every now and then I ask people, so what if you get to know uh, let me bring this because that, this is something that happened to me and it was important. I was teaching a class of MPhil psychology students, clinical psychology students. So they, I was teaching them on the ethics of um, counseling and clinical psychology. And we're talking about competence. How do you assess for competence? How do you know? You know, so we talked about that. And then after that, I was like, okay, so would you guys be willing to see me. Do you think I'm competent? That was the question I asked about a class or two. They were all like, oh yes, you're very competent. So if you have any issue, would you come and see me? Because, oh, Dr. Edwin will come. Then I told them, what if I were to tell you that for the past one year, I've been taking flukes, I think. So this was in 2010. So at that time, I don't even think they believe me. But I, I because I was, I said, what if I were to tell you that for the past one year I've been taking fluxetic. Would you see, still see me? Can you believe, Rev? Not one person. These were MPhil clinical psychology students who a few minutes ago had told me that I was competent and that if they had a problem, they would come and see me. And then I told them that, oh, for the past year, I've been taking fluxetting and not one person. Straight after the lecture, in fact, all three of them, Professor Furiata, Professor Ime, Dr. Sifa, they, they, they were in a meeting. I just went in and I said, y- 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 we should stop what you're doing because your students, I'm not joking, your students that I just finished, I mean, this was the scenario. And as I said, I don't even think that they knew. But even if they knew, a minute, because a minute ago, before I asked that, you thought I was competent, you would see me, blah, blah, blah. Now you get to know this end. So then why are you in mental health? Because if you don't think that a practitioner can recover, or because I've been on it for one year, you know it is maintenance. It's not acute depression. It's like me telling you that I have hypertension and so I'm on medication, maintenance medication, and because of that, you won't come and see me. I mean... That's how senseless it is, but it shows how widespread stigma is because we all are members of the society. This is Springboard, your virtual university. I warned you when we started that this was going to be very, very revealing and very, very explosive. My guest for today, Dr. Amachirwa Edwin. She's a physician, a clinical psychologist, and a bioethicist. On a record, I don't pause. I know you're going to be myself. She's been telling the story that, and the note of which she, she, she just ended this first part is just blown my mind away. That people who trust you are confident in your competence suddenly change their outlook when you see, I myself am receiving help. Let's go for this break. When we come back, let's go into the unseen part of the engine room, the extent to which people go hiding their cars and walking behind the house just to see a practitioner for help so no one will see them and see their car number. If you ever have heard about the extent to which people go, you realize that we have a big, big issue. 
please do go away. Hello. Dear valued customer. Hmm. Hey, Asemo. The entire customer service team is out for lunch. Please call back in four hours. What? Me nana be dia kona mama me bad service ano. Me kokra. Ah, nana. With bus from Enterprise D, you will love the customer service experience, Kiki. I'm available for you 24/7 on the Enterprise Advantage app, the Enterprise website, and on WhatsApp number 055-400-1924. Hello. Babs. Chat with Babs from Enterprise, your contact for insurance, pensions, funeral, and property solutions from the Enterprise Group. Dream big with us. Enterprise, your advantage. <laughs> When you can be anything, who will you become? When you can go anywhere and never feel alone, how far will you go? When you have the means to make your dreams real, when will you start? When your voice can reach every ear, who will you inspire? When your money can travel faster and further than you ever could, where will you send it? When you can tell a story in every language, which ones will you tell? When nothing can stop you, and everyone's behind you, and, and the, the whole, whole world, world awaits, awaits you. Don't go alone. Go with us. Everywhere, Everywhere you, you go. go. Aquaba, UMB is proud to offer you the best business solutions possible. We have been excelling in serving Ghana since 1972, and our sole interest is to make your business succeed. We are committed to making you to become number one in any sphere of business or enterprise you are pursuing. With our experience in growing some of the biggest SMEs in Ghana, we can support you become the business leader in Okaishi, Xiaomi, Abusokai, or any of the SME enclaves in Ghana with our SME solutions. Our latest SME loans allows you to take a loan backed by the value of your cash flow and inventory so you can increase your trade efficiently. Speak to our business bankers or visit any of our branches now. UMB Bank you first. Welcome back to Springboard, your virtual university, and to this big conversation in the unseen side of the engine room. Springboard is brought to you by the Springboard Roadshow Foundation and proudly sponsored by MTN Pulse, Just Bead, Enterprise Group, Enterprise Your Advantage, UMB Bank, celebrating 50 years in banking and Central University, Ghana's premier private Christian university our media partners, the multimedia group, and the graphic business. On Tuesday in the graphic business, find the story fully transcribed for your, your reading um, exhortation. I want to say pleasure, but this is more about instruction, exhortation, and information, and admonition. And you can share it with your friends and loved ones as well. Find it also on my journal line and also at springboard.com.gh. My guest for today, Dr. Amashiwa Edwin, Helping us to understand the side of life we have never probably looked at in this way. Emma, the last point you made about your students, <laughs> excited about your work, excited about your competence, suddenly be beginning to withdraw when you say, I'm on medication. That yeah. point hits me in the, yeah. in, in the stomach. Yeah. Listen, is it any wonder the extent to which people go to hide it when they are getting help? And, and help us appreciate the extent to which people go. Exactly. Like Nicodemus at, at nice Yes. Places. So a lot of you get, oh, please, blah, blah, loved one. But 
can you come and see the person at home or do you have a private place we can see you in fact now it's even better because apart from the major psychiatric hospitals almost all the big hospitals in accra have uh, mental health departments or units so at ridge at 37 police hospital Kolibu, Kolibu, they even have a ward that they admit. So it's easier because if someone is going to Kolibu, it's a general hospital, even though still you go to their department. And the challenge is when people feel that they are being seen by another person. I remember when we in medical school, I mean, the one place all of us would wear our white coat and put our stethoscope around. And of course, when we're doing the psychiatric rotation, because we wanted to, people who are there know that we are not patients. I mean, we are, we are not there. We are students. Other times on the ward, you don't feel like wearing white coat is hot, but the psychiatric hospital, you see everybody with their white coat and then a stethoscope around their neck just to show that they are, they are students. So, are yes. We, are we unkind as a society? Are we unkind? I don't think it's unkind per se, but it's how we've seen mental health and how we've treated people, chaining them, beating. So it comes from, I mean, someone with a mental health disorder might be diagnosed, not diagnosed, might, might be called a witch or the person might be said that he's evil or he's done something, but very vulnerable. So they were seen as people who shouldn't be part of society. I mean, if you see where the psychiatric hospital started, now is in the center of town. But in the early 1900s, when it started, it wasn't in the center of town. It was far removed from town. You go see where Pantine Hospital is. It was also far removed from town. You go to Anchor for the same thing. I think the only one that started right in the center was the unit in Kumase, which started within the Konfuanoche teaching hospital. So uh, perception is these are people who shouldn't be in the main community. So we take them out. Either it was a no shana, they are taking it to a fetish or a herbalist. It was always out of town, then chained. Some of them are chained. Even now, there are some places, even places you'd expect better, places that are supposed to be prayer camps. I mean, they still have these people chained. But of course, it's far, far better now. It's much improved now. But now, even though I say that people are more willing to see mental health practitioners, I mean, people call, they want to see a psychologist. Sometimes I tell them that, oh, you need to see a psychiatrist. First. And then they, they are not, it's as if we've moved a bit, but we've stopped. People are more comfortable seeing a psychologist. But the moment you say a psychiatrist, you know, then it means that Wajin Sim, I mean, this is the extreme severe. I, I, I've had that. People who have called and I said, you need to see a psychiatrist. I recommend I get you one. They give you an appointment. They don't show. Let, let me find out. Do people sometimes suffer in silence rather than get help? Oh, yes. Yes. 
oftentimes people get help when others around them notice there are a few people who would know maybe they are more enlightened in terms of what is available for mental health and mental well-being and are willing to say to get help so they would come on their own but oftentimes people suffer in silence so by the time they come either harm has been done to people or to others or even to property and that is really sad for me because you you hear stories oh and then the person relapsed and we thought we could manage it and he hurt someone and the person is injured or he's destroyed this because the stigma is not just with the person the people around him or her are also stigmatized Mm. so if your child is ill and you take him people will see the child everything but then it's like oh reverend albert's child i'm edwin's child you know so it's not just even the patient but those are around also gets the stigma is it is it because we've not yet grown to the point one of the comparisons you made was very illuminating for me you said it's, it's maintenance. So for you, the person taking their medication for their mental health issues is just like the person taking their medication for their diabetes. Exactly. You made it sound so simple. Is it that we haven't come to that point? Well, I, I hadn't. Actually, it was my husband who, I mean, one of the times, when was it? Um, this was about nine years. So I think it was 20... 18 and I was talking and I was like ah, I don't remember any patient I've seen who's been on antidepressants for nine years or so I mean I was talking and then he said remember that with your second pregnancy for both of them I had what is known as pregnancy induced hypertension so after the first one it goes it went away but with the second one it didn't go away I've been taking my medication and he says I don't even wait so the moment I have one strip, I was like, oh, Frank, please, get me natrizam. I just have one. He said, I have never once complained that this thing was PIH. It should have gone away after he was gone, born. It hasn't gone, and I'm still taking antihypertensives. So why am I, with all my knowledge and everything, why can't I see that the antidepressant is doing the same thing? So I have to do that. You know, for me, one of the turning points, and I make this, I say this with all, with all humility. When my mother got dementia, I looked at her, loving her for who she was, all she meant to me, and watching her switch between the days when she's, she can talk, remember everything, and the next day is the day she's off. And she, she looks at her and says, who are you? And she says, Albert. And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> Initially it was, but with time, I found out, I could relate to that very well. And on the day she doesn't feel like it, just be there for her and with her. Then it struck me, Doc, that many of the people who were called witches years ago were either struggling from dementia, Alzheimer's, or some... Yeah. condition that people yeah. could not relate to. Yeah. Will that be a, a, yeah, that, that, that is a, a very strong possibility. They are forgetful. They walk away from their home. Sometimes they don't even check what they are wearing. Yes. And they are there and someone catches them all and then says that they are which they've done this. Said, I mean, yeah. Yeah. 
And she would tell yeah. me she hasn't eaten. She just finished her. Oh, yes. She hasn't eaten. Uh, like, ah. <laughs> I used to have been to my, 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 my grandmother too. And until one day when my dad went, because he would always tell my father that uh, my aunt hadn't fed him. And then one day he went there. He had eaten. She had eaten. And afterwards, I'm going hmm. Yeah, my maid, yeah, knew. And then he's like, so, so then my dad was not sure what was going on. They have no recollection. What? So, so I was, I, I, I used to say that one of the doctors who write few excuse duties because my patients will say you are known and the moment I take it, even without the diagnosis, this is, but this was years ago where I'd seen a woman who was depressed and she needed time to recover. So I gave her an excuse duty and then I wrote the diagnosis. Now I don't do that, but then I, because the form had that, so I thought I had to fill it and then sign and stamp it. She came back to me two weeks later that when she sent it to her job, she, they, they received it, but I mean, a few Days after that, they called her and said that she had been. What's the way they use? Is it retrenched or redeployed? Yes. I mean, and nothing had happened. This was someone who was doing everything. And for me, the sad thing was it was a public institution. I mean, not that it would have been right if it was private, but I mean, I thought that her rights would be more enshrined in the public. That's one thing we always say is that, oh, at least in the public service or in the public um, space, their rights are respected and all of that. But no. And that's why people would not want to see the doctor or even if they go and see the doctor and it's excuse duty. Some of them who have leave time will tell you that they would rather take their leave, which is not right. You take your leave so to rest and recovery, but not when you are recovering. If you had cancer, if you had malaria, if you had surgery, that wouldn't be a problem. But I must say that there are a few institutions who are also taking this up and are interested in the well-being of their members. So for those institutions, they are doing a great job. I hope that everybody can do that because it can happen to anybody. It's no respecter of persons. I mean, for me, it hit me from nowhere. It was like you were driving and then out of nowhere, a big truck comes. I mean, that's just how I felt. You didn't you see, see it your coming. Own, your own experience has increased your empathy for your patients. Oh, yes. I, I think it's one of the things that um, Dr. Sifadidi made me see when... One time when I was talking about <laughs> getting off this oppression, you know, and not letting it bother me. And she said, you've, you, you, you've become a better therapist. You become more empathetic because there were times I know I had to go and see her, but I wouldn't show up. I, I don't want to go. You see, therapy, therapy is not easy. I, I tell people who I know who wants me to see them that look. In therapy, the space is created before you know you are talking about things you hadn't meant to say. I'm your friend. I don't want you to feel that the things you've told me, one, confidentiality is assured within the limits. Of course, if you say you are going to kill someone, I have to report that. But barring the limitations of the law, it's assured. But it's like, it's like burying yourself. It's like undressing. 
literally before not literally figuratively but, but you invented for a surgeon yes you, you yes but in, the, in in therapy just be, before someone says that hey, you go to therapy because i said literally so it's figuratively it's okay. it's undressing that you are bare you know so things come up and it can be challenging and sometimes you just go and you have to do the work so it's like uh uh-uh. so now when my clients don't show up i understand i know it's that's one of those days. I'll wait for a few days. If I don't hear from them, send a message and just check in on you. Is everything okay? Yes, okay. Know that you, whenever you want to come, just let me know and I'll give you another appointment. You, you leave the door open because it's not, it's not easy. The whole of Ghana is listening to you. In your opinion, what should we do differently? When we see people struggling, we should offer help. I mean, you know the person. Maybe you have a friend who is usually gregarious talking and you notice over the past few days has become withdrawn or irritable or weepy. Find out what's going on. What can I do to help? If you know that the person has a history of mental illness in particular and you think they are struggling, find out what can I do to help them. Normalize it. It's any it's an illness like any other. You won't hide it if you had a cut and it has been bandaged and you've been given time off. You'll be happy that you 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 are being able to get the help you needed. It's because you went to hospital. But sometimes, even with cut, there are some people we have to take to hospital. So in the same thing, the stigma, being diagnosed with a mental illness is not the end of the story. Doc, I can't say thank you enough for this conversation. We've talked about having it for a while, and I'm glad you made time for busy chair to be with us. Um, let's wrap up by telling telling me how you how you feel about being able to to share this experience just to bless somebody i think for me i you know there are things that you know god wants you to do and you 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 have excuses oh gosh i've been through this (laughs) Uh, but it's it's, it's, it was a greater works, right, that you talked about. But it's something that had been on my mind, and I told God that, okay, when the opportunity comes, I will share sometimes in smaller groups and other things like that. I have been able to share, but you know the platform this is, and it's not just limited to Ghana and it's online, all of it. But I knew it wasn't about me. It's about relief because I had done one with my year group and the response and the follow-up and people calling people to rewatch it because it, it puts contest in it. And I think it also makes you know that depression shouldn't define your life. And that, that's what, if I should end with anything, it shouldn't define you. You are not your sickness. Mm. I personally don't like it when we use adjectives to describe patients, the diabetic patient, the hypertensive patient, the psychotic patient.
patient, the depressive patient. It's a patient living with hypertension, patient living with diabetes, patient living with depression or suffering, so that you are a whole human being. This is just a part of you. It doesn't define you. Yes, there are things you may not be able to do now because of what you are going through, but that's not the end of your story. You're going to come out. And when you come out, you'll be able to raise others with you, you know. So please, no matter what you're going through, especially if it is mental health, don't give up. Don't give up. I know that it can be challenging and sometimes people can be unkind and can say all sorts of things. But this is not the end of your story. God has great things in store. This is something you need to go through and it's preparing you for what he has in mind for you at the end you'll be able to look up and say wow god thank you for taking me through this i complain but i know that now i'm better at doing what i know you want me to do because i went through that with those tears of gratitude, tears of joy. Tears <laughs> <laughs> of gratitude. I mean, it's just, I'm just grateful that I can even talk about it because before it was so difficult. Anytime I talked about it, then I would cry. But I know many people who have been helped by, by you reaching out to them to share your own experience. It's changed the lives of so many. And I'm glad you've been able to do this on a bigger scale to be a blessing to humanity. And I, I can only say thank you for using your life as a gift <laughs> for other people. So this has really been a well. very, very special edition of Springboard, your virtual investment with my big sister, Dr. Amachi Wyadwin, open up your life in a way I've never, ever heard her do publicly before. But this has been such a blessing to so many, and I know that for sure. So on behalf of Team Springboard, led by Comfort and our partners, MTN Pulse, Enterprise Group, UMB Bank, and... Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.